Ephesians 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Thank you, honey. Uh, please keep your Bibles open. We, we are going to refer back to that passage uh, shortly. We're also going to refer back to a whole stack of other ones. Um, and you can follow along. Uh, those should appear on the screen behind me, um, hopefully. So you can write down the references and uh, chase them up a bit later if you like. Uh, back in the 50s, um, some scientists did a study with some lab rats. Um, lab rats get made to do all sorts of uh, unpleasant things, but these lab rats had a slightly better experience. Um, they hooked their brains up to electrodes in a not terribly invasive way, uh, and they, they linked them particularly to the pleasure centre of the brain, the, the, the dopamine-producing spot in their brains. Uh, and then they put these lab rats in a cage, or in an enclosure, uh, and in it was a little lever. And every time the rats pressed the lever, it stimulated that pleasure centre in their brains. It gave them a dopamine hit. And the scientists were curious. I, I wonder um, how much rats like that. It turns out a lot. <laughs> pleasure is addictive, apparently. Who would have known? Uh, the rats hit that lever over and over and over again. Uh, one even managed to clock up 7,000 hits in one hour. <laughs> That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's over 100 times a minute. Just go on a town on that lever. Uh, the scientists did all sorts of things. They found that, um, you know, the, the, the rats would ignore other things that they liked. You know, they'd, they'd ignore the food that they liked. They'd ignore lady rats that they might have liked um, just to get to that lever. They ignored bad things. They would, they would go through painful things to get to that lever and get their hit of dopamine. The scientists found out that they were absolutely ruled by pleasure. It wasn't just something they felt. 
um, that desire and that drive, it absolutely dominated them. Now, we are not, <laughs> sorry to say this, we're not too different when it comes to our feelings, are we? Not just pleasure, uh, but all sorts of emotions, as we saw in the kids' talk. We, we, are not, we are emotional beings, and our emotions aren't just things that we feel. Um, our emotions are things that rule us and direct us and at times um, even dominate us. You know, when you're, when you're feeling angry, you know, the, the red mist comes down and it, and it changes everything that you do. And it's, it's not by choice, explicitly. You, you get ruled by that emotion. Um, when you're feeling happy, you know, we say you put the, the rose-tinted glasses on. And that's how you see and that's how you act in the world and, and so on. Our emotions are a huge part of driving how we act. They, 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 they aren't just part of who we are. They direct us. All sorts of emotions, love and anger and passion and, and, and frustration. So what about God? Because the Bible uses lots of uh, very emotional and emotive language about God. But how does that work? Is, is God emotional? Is God subject to his feelings? Is he um, perhaps ruled by his feelings? Um, we recoil from that thought, rightly so, but what does that mean? Is God unfeeling, you know, indifferent, cold perhaps? What sort of a God do we have? That's really the question that we're asking. What sort of being is God? Does he feel? Well, today we're going to try and find out. I say try because this is a complicated one. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, and there's disagreement around it, but we're going we're gonna to deal with it as best we can um, and hopefully find some good things for us from God's Word as well about this. So, so hopefully it's helpful for us. Our word for today, as we heard in the kids' talk, is impassibility. Word you've never used, never use again, impassibility. Last week we saw immutability, which meant that God doesn't change. Today is closely related to that. Impassibility, uh, God is not changed by or affected by suffering or pain that, that's the definition of the word impassable not affected by suffering um, and we broaden that out uh, so not just suffering not affected by suffering but also other strong feelings or other emotions we've seen this over the past few weeks god is independent we've seen that uh, not acted upon not changed or directed by external forces um, and so unlike us not emotionally subject. That's, that's kind of what we're talking about this morning. But it begs the question, if that's how we describe God, if that's how we've described God for thousands of years, how do we reconcile that with all the very emotional language that the Bible gives us about God? I mean, you don't have to read very far to read God expressing himself in strong emotions. Now, here's, here's a quick tour. Uh, we're going to put the overhead guys to work. Um, they're going to flash up quickly. Isaiah 62 verse 5. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. We have a God who feels joy over his people. Psalm 78 verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. We have a God who mourns and a God who feels grief. Exodus 32 verse 10. Now leave me alone so that my anger 
may burn against them and that I may destroy them. A God who feels passionate anger. Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father has compassion or pity, depending on your translation, on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. We're a God who pities, who, who feels compassion towards his people. Isaiah 54, verse 10. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. It is quite a range of emotion, isn't it? And we've really just scratched the surface, uh, let alone God's frustration or God's mourning or his regrets or his patience or, or any number of different things. Well, the Bible tells us God is a God who feels things. God is a God who expresses himself to us and experiences emotion. But, unlike us, he is not ruled by his emotions. Uh, this is what uh, Kevin Van Hooser, which is a cool name for a theologian, this is what Kevin Van Hooser said. Impassibility means not that God is unfeeling, but that God is never overcome or overwhelmed by passion. God feels, but he is not ruled by his feelings. Uh, there was a great Pixar movie uh, about this a few years ago that came out. Um, I don't know if you saw Inside Out. <laughs> it's a really great movie. Uh, you should watch it. Um, in the movie, there's this, it's, it's essentially a story of this girl, but it's, it's more a story of the emotions um, personified inside this girl. Um, so it, it, you get getting flashes inside her head, and the main characters actually turn out to be her emotions. And you, there's five chief emotions, uh, joy, anger, fear, sadness, and disgust. Those are, those are the five emotion, chief emotions that are, that are operating in her mind. Uh, and, and in her mind, there's this control room. Uh, and there, the, the, the emotions act and, and live and operate. And every time the girl makes a decision, it's the emotions driving. Every time there's a reaction, it's the emotions responding and driving that. And at any one point, one of them or more of them is in control of this little girl. And at the start of the movie, for, for the little girl, whose name is Riley, um, for Riley, it was Joy who was sitting in the driver's seat most often. And Joy was driving her reaction. She was a bubbly and bright little girl because Joy was the one who was her chief reaction. But as the story goes on, um, it's sadness that starts to take over. And you get snapshots inside her parents' heads and see their control rooms and what's going on there. Uh, and you see anger in the driver's seat of the dad. And in the mum, you see sadness uh, driving her reactions. And it's quite brilliant. It's quite insightful, even, because it captures something that's true about us. Our emotions drive us. Our emotions drive our actions. They drive our responses. Our emotions, to some extent, rule us. But not God. God is not like us in that. Impassibility means God can express himself to us using emotion language. It means that God truly does feel, but that he is not ever overcome by or overwhelmed by or ruled by his feelings and his emotions. Whilst we use the same words and concepts and language to describe both God and us, there is a difference in how they apply to God and us. We're talking about two different things. 
Uh, Love makes us do all sorts of crazy and unusual things, but not God. It's not because he doesn't feel it, it's because he feels it far more fully and perfectly and rightly than we ever could. And so it never makes him act out of character like it does for us. Anger makes us do things that we regret, but not God. God feels anger rightly and strongly, and, but is never ruled or driven by it. And, and, and we could go on. And so we can be confident as God's people then. Because we know God's never going to be in a foul mood when we go and speak with him. Um, He's never going to be an emotional wreck or a blubbering mess because he's not ruled by his emotions in the same way that we are ruled by our emotions. He feels. He feels intensely and perfectly. He knows your feelings. He knows them, in fact, far better than you know your feelings. And yet, while perfectly feeling, he is still unchanging. Um, you might remember what we saw last week. God is, is uh, unchanging in that he is pure act. Um, not, not nothing, not unmoving, but perfect action all the time. And so he is unmoving then in his feelings and constant. Impassibility is good, even if it's hard to understand. Because for a moment, just imagine the alternatives to it. I mean, imagine for a moment an almighty God whose emotions fluctuate. That that is a terrifying picture, isn't it? That's an awful thing. I mean, what might that God do in a fit of rage? How might he be manipulated? Or on the other extreme, imagine an unfeeling God, uh, a God who is emotionless. How could you relate to a God like that? How could you go to a God like that when when you're feeling terrible emotions or when you're feeling great pain and and heartache and confusion? How could you approach him? Impassibility walks that fine line. It just tells us of a God who feels, but a God who is not ruled. A God who is not indifferent, but a God who knows. And I think that's an amazing thought. Uh, We saw it in all its beauty there in our text that we read just before from Ephesians. Uh, A God who feels, this is what it says of God, a God who uh, predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. (laughs) Do you hear that? It's a God who delighted, who who loved, and, and out of that love chose his people. And yet who did that, not in response to his people, we're told who did that before the creation of the world. A God who feels that even before time began. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? Perfect love and perfect delight. But not driven by our loveliness or our deservedness, not acted upon, but, but, but perfect in action, in and of itself. Not responsive or sporadic, but faithful and true and eternal. That is, that is our God. I don't, know you, I don't know about you, but I, I can't imagine how people have ever prayed at any point through history, and lots of people have, um, how people have ever prayed to you know, physical idols or physical gods in temples. Can you, can you imagine that experience? Um, you know, imagine going and standing or kneeling before a lump of rock <laughs> or a lump of wood or a piece of metal while you are grieving over the death of a child. 
or mourning the death of a spouse, can you imagine standing there with that emotion coursing through you in front of a lifeless thing? Or approaching it in, in great joy, you know, having experienced great success or, or, or whatever. I mean, surely the thought will cross your mind. <laughs> what am I doing here? What would you know of my joy or grief? Well, you never have to think that when you come to God, to our God, the living and true God, because he does know. And he knows perfectly because he is a God who feels. Impassable, independent, not ruled, yes, but a God who has emotions and who knows them perfectly. But the next question that comes under this, this banner of impassable is uh, related. Does God suffer? So God feels emotions, yes. But what about suffering? What about this intensity of feeling? Do, does God suffer? I think our instinct, uh, in light of what we've seen, would be to say no. I mean, after all, God's unchanging or God's independent. He's unacted upon. Um, surely suffering would violate those things. So logically, God couldn't. But if God can't suffer, then it kind of feels like something might be missing in our relationship or missing in our experience of one another, wouldn't it? I mean, how could he ever relate to us if, if he doesn't know what it's like? Or if he's never experienced it, how could he be empathetic? Surely that would create distance between us. Uh, Eli Wiesel, I think, um, he, he wrote a story about the Holocaust and in, in his story, in his book, he describes a scene in a concentration camp in which some uh, men were hanged and all of the uh, inhabitants of the camp were, were forced to watch as these men were hanged. Uh, and one of them uh, died very slowly and it took almost an hour to die in terrible agony and the whole camp is there watching this happen. And in the ranks, someone says quite quietly as they watch this scene where is God where is he and another character answers he's here he is hanging on the gallows and you think that sounds comforting doesn't it you know the idea of a God who enters into our suffering who joins us in our suffering and and, and knows it, experiences it personally for himself, that, that sounds comforting. But is it actually good? <laughs> More to the point, is it actually right? Does God, can God suffer? And can he suffer and still be God? How do, how do we resolve that? Uh, well, here's how. You might remember if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about simplicity, uh, the simplicity of God. That is, God is one and there are no parts in him. One essence of God, and yet, God is three persons. All completely God. One essence, three persons. Um, that's a very short summary. You can go back to YouTube if you've forgotten or if you need to listen to it. Uh, but what that means is we can say that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and, and vice versa, with the Spirit. And yet, they are utterly united and equally God. But what that means for us is that when Jesus went to the cross and experienced terrible suffering on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, he did so as someone who is utterly unique. 
He went to that cross as someone who is fully God and fully human. Both truly the Son of God, as we've sung and as we've heard, and as we remember at Christmas, the Son of Joseph and Mary. And not in a way that he's, you know, 50-50 God and man, but in a way that he is 100% God and 100% man at the same time. And this is why it matters. Okay, say for example, say Jesus was only God and then he suffered as God alone. Um, If that could possibly happen, if that was the case, he would be utterly unrelatable, wouldn't he? You know, what does divinity suffering look like? And if it could happen, it, it would be something, but it wouldn't be suffering the way that we experience, would it? It, it would be something else, it would be something different. Uh, we couldn't understand it. it. It'd be like women explaining to men what giving birth feels like. We, you know, we just we can't get it. There's, there's a difference there. Whereas if we flip it around, and if Jesus was just a man, and if he suffered as just a man, then his suffering, although it would be admirable, it wouldn't be terribly helpful, would it? It might be a great example, but he'd be too like us. What, would it, what could it possibly ever achieve for us? But here's the thing. Jesus is fully divine and fully human. And so his suffering is both infinitely significant and infinitely real. His experience is real His empathy is real and the effect of it is real because he is uniquely him. Okay, say for example, say uh, your house catches fire. Uh, You escape, uh, you make it out the front door, but your family is trapped inside. Now, understandably, you are horrified by this situation and you are out on the street and you are screaming uh, in, in fear and worry and you are begging for help. Of course, your neighbours are all out there as well, uh, and your neighbours empathise with you. And they start screaming, and they start tearing their clothes and pulling their hair out and and, and screaming in fear and helpful. Uh, I don't know what that experience would be like. Um, You might appreciate the fact that they are feeling your feelings uh, and coming alongside you in that. But it's not very helpful, is it? A group of screaming people doesn't get a lot done. But then a firefighter appears, and he or she uh, is not showing much emotion, um, but has their face set, and walks up to the house, enters the house, and comes out with your family. Is the firefighter empathetic? Well, we'd have to say yes, wouldn't we? (laughs) We'd have to say yes, because they have entered into your issue, they have understood it, and they've acted, and their empathy is effective. And that's why it matters so much that Jesus is both divine and human, that he is like us and different to us, because he feels and he truly experiences that suffering to an extent that we could hardly imagine. But in that, he doesn't just feel, he acts, and he acts effectively to help us in our situation. Jesus didn't just hang on the gallows, he tore them down. In his death, death is not just experienced but defeated. In his suffering, suffering isn't just known but is ended forever. 
Here's how Hebrews 2 puts it. It should appear on the screen behind me. Let me read some verses from Hebrews 2. Since the children, that is God's people, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. As a man, he truly suffered for us, to save us, and because he was God, he was able to. We're going we're to sing it in a moment. Yes, he walked my road and he felt my pain, joys and sorrows that I know so well. Yes, God is impassable. He is unaffected and independent in his essence. And yet, in the human nature of the Son, he submitted himself to suffering, even to death on a cross. He felt it fully. Your God, our God, is not powerless in the face of suffering. He doesn't just feel and experience the hurts of this world impotently. He isn't just a God who is with us in our sufferings. In Jesus, he is for us in suffering. For he has willingly took it on himself in order to end it forever. You know what it's like to suffer. Uh, I know that of all of you. Um, you've experienced hurts and pains and confusion and all sorts of horrible things. Um, I've seen it in you. I've heard it from many of you. So you know what it's like. And it, it just can be so distressing, can't it? We, we come to these points and we just think, I don't understand. <laughs> it hurts and I can't stop it and I can't understand it. And, and we, we, we pray to God, we ask that question, why? Why is this happening? And we can think of God, do you even understand what this feels like? And the answer is yes. He does. Because in the humanity of Jesus, he has experienced suffering unimaginable. He knows he knows it for himself. And it's why, it's why he speaks so many words of comfort, because he gets it. He speaks those words of comfort and hope and relief, because he knows and he understands that life hurts, because he has walked that path himself. And so there is true comfort, there is true empathy in him. And not just in his knowledge of suffering, not just in his relatability in suffering, but in his plan for it. Because it won't last forever. Because he won't let it. And he's acted to stop it. The death of death and the end of pain, that is what he has achieved in his suffering for us. There is hope when it hurts in our impassable God. Because we have a God who feels and yet is not overcome by feeling. 
We have a God who suffered in Jesus' humanity and worked there to deal with suffering forever. He is not cold. He is not impersonal. He is not unmoved. He is a father who relates, a friend who cares, a companion who walks with, and a king who won. And it is all there in his staggering sovereignty and power, personal and close. So let's give thanks to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are awed at who you are. We are amazed at what you have shown us of yourself, at the God uh, that you are, that you are both powerful and personal, that you are almighty and close, a God who knows us, a God who knows our feelings, a God who loves, who cares, who is close. And yet a God who is unchangeable in nature, unchangeable in goodness and grace and righteousness and justice. A God on whom we can lean, a God on whom we can come to and trust in. Father, we praise you for the comfort of knowing who you are, that you are not cold and unfeeling, but that you are warm and caring and here. And that you are a God who is powerful who not only knows our hurts, but has acted to end each one of them. And so we praise you for Jesus. We praise you that he entered into our sufferings, not just to experience them, but to destroy them and to give us hope of a life without pain, of a life without suffering. Father, we pray that you would help us to find peace in him when we hurt, and not just peace, but that reminder of hope eternal that he has won for us. We thank you for him and in his name we pray. Amen.